Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Before we get started, let's uh, bow our heads together. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship and focused and ready to study. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we had this opportunity to to study your word. We thank you for the conference we just had, for the uh, clarity of uh, the speakers and the material that they presented, the way they challenged people to think think biblically. And Father, we just pray that you would uh, continue to stimulate and challenge each of us as we press on to spiritual maturity to understand the entire counsel of your word. Now, Father, as we continue to study about the new covenant that you are going to enact with Israel and Judah. We pray that you'd help us to understand these things and, and uh, that they would give us a greater perception of, of your plans and purposes in history. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. A couple of comments about, um, well, first of all, I want to comment on prayer. We didn't have prayer meeting this week. You will have prayer meeting next week. I talked to Janice Ice this afternoon called to ask Tommy something, and she was, he was on a radio interview. But she said that Ed Heinsohn is doing uh, somebody who's conscious. He still has a ventilator on. They're trying to get him off the vent as quick as possible because that can wipe out your voice. And so he still has his kidneys aren't functioning yet, so he's not anywhere near out of the woods. And so we need to continue to pray, uh, pray for him. And... Um, I can't remember. It seems to me somewhere buzzing around in my head. There's a couple other uh, additions or modifications to our prayer prayer list, but I can't remember what they are right right now. Regarding the conference, I hope everybody enjoyed that. I think all of the presenters did a very good job. We had some uh, uh, some new presenters this year. I think Dan Ingram did a tremendous job on uh, on his paper. Uh, yesterday afternoon. We also had a good opportunity to hear from George about the seminary, some of the things going on there. The board met on Monday, and we continue to have to uh, deal with, uh, I guess, the two big issues that face the, uh, maybe there's three big issues that face the board. One is just the transition to Albuquerque. Another one is that the board is still rest, still trying to vest ourselves with some of the hangover from this whole issue that got splattered on us from Grace Evangelical Society and their split over uh, the understanding of the gospel, which is unfortunate, but un- but uh, sadly it continues. And ever since John Nimala, who at the time was a professor for Chafer Seminary, was here two years ago and uh, inappropriately suggested we ought to change our doctrinal statement because of his understanding of the gospel, that it's just telling people that you can have eternal life by believing in Jesus without any mention of the cross. And where they have gone with this, if you're not aware of this, is that you don't even have to tell people about the cross. And and um, some of their people have been quoted as saying that that there will be people in heaven who trusted Jesus for eternal life. 
And they won't find out that Jesus died for their sins until they get to heaven. Because they just accepted the gift of eternal life. And this is a major uh, problem, theological problem, that is plaguing the whole free grace movement right now. And I think that at the very core is a problem in, herm- in, in hermeneutics or interpretation because what they're saying is that the Gospel of John is the only book in the New Testament that tells us what the Gospel is. Paul tells us how salvation works, justification, regeneration, redemption, all these things, but John tells us that belief is in Christ for, is in Christ for eternal life. And they approach this thing, and this, this is a great example for those of you who come on Monday night for the History of Doctrine class, this is a great example of what happens in church history when people start asking perhaps the wrong question. Sometimes you don't know you're asking the wrong question when you ask it. But sometimes you can get to where you're asking the wrong question and it leads to a screwball answer. And their question was, what's the, if, if, you, if you get down to the very core of the gospel, what's the least a person has to believe in order to be saved? Now think about that. Now, you may not be tracking with me yet, but do you have to believe Jesus is fully God in order to be saved? Is that part of, part of the gospel? Do you have to believe that, uh, do you have to believe that in the Trinity in order to be saved? You know, if you, if you give somebody a track, you just say, Jesus died for your sins and you can have forgiveness. You haven't even mentioned eternal life. Jesus died for your sins, you can have full, complete forgiveness if you trust in Him. Is that enough to get you saved? Yeah, I think that I think that is. But but where do you stop? What what is what is ex, just sort of extra explanation, and what is the minimalist approach? Well, the reality is that none of us give a minimalist gospel, and I think by even addressing the question, you're. I mean, it might be something for academic pinheads in some theological ivory tower somewhere. But the reality is, is that when any of us, and even even the people who are on the other side of the issue for me, give the gospel, they're trying to explain as much as they can about how salvation works, and not just giving the least. And see, that's where you, you can you can start down a wrong road by asking the wrong question, and you can really end up in a in a in a theological cul-de-sac. Of course, we've seen that you see that when you study uh, church history and the history of doctrine. But this has just had uh, some some uh, terrible ramifications because people actually think that that was Chafer Seminary's position, and it's not. That's not the position of the, found, the pastors who founded the seminary, and it's not the the view of of, uh, of of the seminary today. It's not the position of the uh, of most of the board members. We there's there's one exception. And, but he doesn't push it, and uh, and it's more of an academic thing, so it's not really an issue. But but this is the kind of thing that that gets people very 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 upset, and very confused. So that's about the second thing we're dealing with, and then the third thing that we're dealing with is just planning for the future, and uh, trying to develop a future and communicate a vision for the future to people. So you can pray for Chafer Seminary on those areas that we can get this transition out of California accomplished that we can have a, a clear articulation of what we believe about the gospel. And then the third thing is that we can have a, 
uh, really communicate the vision of the future to people because as we go through our culture today, what we have to offer is less and less palatable to fewer and fewer people or more and more people. It's less palatable to more people. They don't want to think. They just want to feel good. And I've just been amazed at how many people are that way. You know, and, and on the one side, it, in, in, in the area of Christianity, we've got, we've got people. We've got people in Houston. We've got people in different other parts of the city. You just turn on Channel 14, and you can see all kinds of people who have these mega churches of 10, 15, 20,000 people. And they don't ever say anything. And people are just as happy as they could be. And then you look at, you know, some of the political candidates, and, and they're, the, they're the political counterpart, and they're just out there making everybody feel good and no content because it's like America has just rejected content. And the result, it's not new in history. This has happened again and again and again, and it happened in the Old Testament with Israel, and that is why God took the northern kingdom out in discipline in, in uh, 722 and why he took the southern kingdom out in 586. And it all boils down to the fact that that's what we what, uh, emphasized really in the two presentations by Martin Bobgan, that the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. And that even applies to believers because the, the heart is not, we're not given a new heart at salvation as, as a believer in the way that the Jews are given a new heart with the new covenant, which is what we're looking at, which we're looking at tonight. Our, we still have a sin nature, and the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Uh, who can know it? And, and those, I hope you appreciated what Martin had to say. I think there were some, um, there was a little area of, uh, where he didn't make one thing really clear. And a lot of people ask this question a lot and aren't clear on this. And that is that there is a difference between psychotherapy and psychiatry. Psychotherapy and psychiatry. Psychiatry deals with physical problems that relate to chemical imbalances. It can relate to any number of, of causes, chemical causes, uh, organic causes, a number of things that, that can cause um, you know, different problems, a range of different things. And those need to be treated with, with medication. And that helps stabilize people in those particular areas. But then there's a whole host of problems we just get into ourselves emotionally and spiritually because of sin. And things that we just face because of the, the trend of our own sin nature. Some people have a trend to their sin nature that's just, it's it just, they, they, you know, as soon as something happens, they go to the negative and they're despondent and they're depressed. And that's just a trend to their sin nature. And other people worry all the time. That's just a trend to their sin nature. Worry is not a, a, a disorder. It is a sin. And you have to address it as a sin. You have to say, stop it. Oh, laugh. Come on. Weren't you here for George's talk? Stop it. If you weren't here, you got to watch it. He showed this clip from an old Bob Newhart, the original Bob Newhart show, where he's a psychiatrist, and this lady comes in, and she talks about she's just scared to death of, a, of being buried alive in a box. So she won't even, she doesn't like to be in a house or in an elevator or anything that's boxy. And he says, well, i got two words that will cure you. Well, what are they? Stop it. <laughs> and see, that's it. That, that, you know, we laugh. I mean, it was great, but, but that's the issue with, with sin. And George did a great job in that whole presentation 
is that the reason we have so many of the problems we have in life is just because we let our sin nature run amok. And we start letting that happen from the moment we take that first breath. That sin nature is activated. And a lot of times by the time we're really cognizant of a lot of the things that the decisions we let me put it this way when we're volitionally conscious of a lot of decisions we're making we've already established habit patterns from our sin nature and how we deal with things and it isn't until we become after we're saved and we become adults that we then begin to think about the fact that i've got bad habits see and that's what we do is we have bad sin nature habits in responding to negative situations in life. So we come under certain pressures and we lose our temper. Why? Well, that's the habit pattern we started when we were two weeks old. <clears throat> and we figured out, this: if I could scratch up my face and get it all red and scream loud enough, then I would get attention and the problem would get solved. So we developed this habit pattern that that's how we're going we're gonna to deal with problems. Now, when we're, <clears throat> we're 20, we realize, you know, that's not the way to do it, but i got to deal with my sin nature. So... And that's what he's addressing is that in, in terms of how we talk to people and the problems that they have in life, the, the communication aspect, that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the truth. This is the Word of God. And we don't have to send them to talk to somebody who's going to approach from a different model of human behavior. And, and he talked about the fact that there's over, over I think now there's maybe over 500 uh, different models of human behavior in the whole psychological community. Anybody you talk to, they figure, well, this is how I think man is. Now they don't even believe there's a soul. It's all, it's all biological. Everything is biological. There's no soul. There's no volition. Everything is biochemical. And that's why you have the over-medication on the psychiatric side is because that fundamentally what's happening is that with a rejection of God, and with a rejection of the idea that man is created in the image of God, there is no immaterial part of man. Everything is material. So if everything's material, then the way to cure any problem is always going to be through, through drugs. So it, it, you, that's why it's so hard today to work through some of this stuff. And as a pastor, as much as I've read about it, there's, just, there's areas that, that just aren't clear. But the bottom line is that when it comes to telling people whether they need to be on medication or not, and giving them the information they need on how to live their life, it comes down to just the basic principles of Scripture, is to apply the Word of God in fellowship, walk by the Spirit. It's summed up in the hymn, Trust and Obey. If we would just do that consistently, then we would be able to resolve all these things. But what we do is we tend to, uh, crisis hits, we hit adversity, and we go to that default position, which is the sin nature. And then we go, oh, well, wait a minute. I wasn't really supposed to do that. Let's, I better confess my sin and start applying the word. And it's developing those habits to correct the bad habits. And so that, that was the thrust of what, what Bobkin is saying, is the word of God really is sufficient to give us what we need to help people. And as a pastor... And this is one of the reasons I had him come and speak at the, at the pastor's conference. We have to have the confidence that we can truly help people with all the problems in their life. And I remember when I came out of Dallas Seminary, having had pastoral psychology and counseling with 
uh, Paul Meyer and Frank Minners, and I don't know how many of you all know who Paul Meyer and Frank Minners are, but they have the Meyer Minners clinics, and these clinics have popped up all over. There's one here in Houston. It was down in Bel Air. They have one up in Little Rock, I know, and one in Dallas, and they have them all over the country. It wasn't until sometime after that I said, why in the world, if I'm learning pastoral psychology, do they have two psychiatrists in here teaching this? And they kept talking to us, and, I, you know, I was just really wasn't uh, uh, up on a lot of this stuff as a student that I am now. And I'm thinking, I keep hearing them say that, you know, somebody comes in and they're depressed. Well, see, you know, there's this chemical imbalance and they don't have enough norepinephrine or epinephrine or whatever it was. And see, they, they really need to get this and they need to get that. And I'm thinking, I'm a pastor. I'm not giving people shots or I'm not doing, you know, take, giving them blood tests. or I don't, and, and I guess I can't help people if I don't know all this stuff. I th- wait a minute, I thought the Bible helped people. And see, that's that's the issue. Do we have what it takes to help people on the volitional, rational, decision-making side of the whole equation? And yes, we do. The Word of God is sufficient. You go through Scripture and you see, you see the men of God and the women of God in the Scriptures dealing with anxiety and depression and all of these... Fear and all of these different things that today are classified in DSM three as as mental disorders, and and the Bible classifies them as sin. <clears throat> and I remember when uh, when I was growing up, hearing pa- the pastor say that uh, that alcoholism isn't a disease; it's a sin. The Bible classifies this as a sin, not as a disease. You start classifying it as a disease, you remove. You remove you remove volitional responsibility. It's just like uh, if I catch catch the flu, I'm not res- I got a disease. I'm not responsible for that. Now there may be genetic uh, tendencies that make one person more susceptible to one thing than another, and that's related to the sin nature. But I can't tell you how many pastors I've talked to. Who um, somebody comes in and they've got a problem. They're, they're, they've got a problem, or their kids have a problem with with drugs or addiction, or that's the first thing you want to do is send them to a twelve step program. And I remember, I guess it was maybe nine years ago, I'm sitting there watching that source of of great medical knowledge in America, known as Good Morning America, and uh, they had uh, they had a representative on from. Uh, AA, from Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, most people don't realize it, but there is really a religious or metaphysical background to AA. And you study the founder, and you study uh, those beliefs, and they just believe in a higher being. But but it's a it's not, the higher being isn't the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's just an amorphous higher being. You can plug into that whatever you want to. And they asked this guy, so what's your, what's your, what's your cure rate? Anybody want to guess? What's the cure rate of AA? Anybody want to guess? No, it's it's higher than zero. It's bigger than a bread box. Okay. <laughs> Anybody want to say it's more than it's it's higher than fifty percent or less than fifty percent? Less than fifty percent. Higher than twenty five percent or lower than twenty five percent? Lower than twenty five percent. Higher than fifteen percent or lower than fifteen percent? No, it's seventeen percent. 
17%. That's not very good. That's not very, that's not very good. That means that if you were taking a test, and this is a final whether or not you would graduate from high school or not, and you made a 17, you're not graduating. That's considered failure. That, that's a, that's an 80, I'm not real good at math as y'all know, but that's an 83% failure rate. Think about that. And the first thing people come up with is somebody has a problem with alcohol or chemical dependency or drugs or something, let's send them to a 12-step program. And there's a lot of churches that host these things. So we want to have something with an 83% failure rate. Well, the Bible has 100% success rate when you apply it. So we need to, I think he has a, very, a good message and a sound message that calls us back to the to the sufficiency of the Word of God, and the, that we uh, we live in a fallen world and fallen bodies with fallen natures, and it is a struggle, and it may be a struggle with some things in our lives, all of our lives. And I think as Americans, we get the idea that if we're doing, and sometimes in, in superficial evangelicalism, we get the idea that if we're doing it right, that it's going to be easy. And that if I'm walking by the Spirit, that somehow the Spirit sort of takes over for me and makes those decisions for me. I, I know I had that idea when I was a teenager. That, you know, if I'm really filled with the Spirit, then, this, then, then why is it still so hard to make a decision to, make, to do the right thing? And that's because the Holy Spirit doesn't take over my volition. And he doesn't start making those decisions. And people get that idea that, that if, I'm, if I'm walking with the Spirit, I'm right with God, that somehow God's going to make making the right decisions easier. And it's not. And I think as a Christian, sometimes it's harder because now we have this, the, 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 we're in the middle of the angelic conflict. And there's that, that struggle between the flesh and the Spirit. And the flesh wars against the Spirit, Galatians 5.17. Now, oh, a war is not, you know, arm wrestling. And the spirit wars against the flesh, and that's going on inside of us. So this isn't something that is, that is easy, but, it, it, but God's power is more than sufficient. And the word is more than sufficient. But it's not always easy to stop it. And we all know that. So I just wanted to kind of add that clarification because I've, I've received several questions uh, from folks uh, since Martin's talk, and people weren't, well, wait a minute, what's, what's the association here between psychiatry and psychology? And I hope that, that clarifies it um, a little bit. Okay, here's our chart on the covenants. Uh, Jack? I noticed this during the conference that both of these uh, projectors are elevated a little high for the screen, cutting off the top, so those need to be uh, shifted down a little bit. We have the Abrahamic covenant as the ground of the five covenants with, with, uh, 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 that God has made with Israel. The Abrahamic covenant has three elements, land, seed, and blessing. The real estate covenant gets fulfilled at the second coming. The Davidic covenant at the second coming and the new covenant at the second coming. And all of these are co- these four are the permanent or eternal covenants that God makes with Israel, and it's not until Israel turns to God corporately in the tribulation 
that prepares them for the fulfillment of these particular covenants. And that's the essence of what I've been teaching on the New Covenant. And in the last few lessons, what I was focusing on was the fact that that we, it, it's some of the things that are said in some of these verses are very close, and it's easy to see why some people interpret them as regeneration. And then what happens is we people say, well, this is when Israel becomes regenerated. And regeneration is a, is a, is a term that indicates that at, at this point, when the regeneration occurs, that at this point, five minutes before that, those people weren't regenerate, which means they weren't saved. And, and we're getting ready to get into a passage tonight where this does seem to be fuzzy, and you can see where it's fuzzy, but it's important to, to just think this through a little bit. So, let's go back and just review about five points that I've covered already. I think, no, I've got more than that. Uh, about nine points. I'm just going to run through them just to summarize them. I'm not even going to state them as points. I'm just going to run it as a summary so we're up to where uh, we've been the last few lessons. In Jeremiah 30, 31, uh, 31 to 32, the new covenant is contrasted with the old covenant or the Mosaic covenant. And in Jeremiah uh, 31, we read, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, <clears throat> when I will make a new covenant. Dates are coming, will, it's all future. This new covenant is future to Jeremiah's time, and he's writing about 595 B.C. at the time when the southern kingdom is getting ready to be defeated militarily. They're going to be wiped out. The people are going to lose their homes, their livelihoods, their savings. Everything's just going to be become uh, obliterated when uh, Nebuchadnezzar comes in in 586 and completely defeats them, destroys them, and wipes out the temple. But God is faithful. You think there were some depressed people then. But God is faithful to provide the answer and the solution. And it may not be the plan that we had. And, and that's usually why we get angry. And people have problems with, with being angry is because they don't get their way. And then they get mad at God because they thought they had a right to things to go one way. And God had a different plan. And now they're, now they're mad at God. And you can just imagine that there were a lot of Jews that were really angry with God because they lost everything. But that's because their thinking wasn't oriented to God's plan to begin with. And Proverbs chapter 3 has this tremendous section there talking about the importance of acquiring wisdom. Because when the time to get to, to use wisdom comes, it's too late. And when you acquire wisdom and you practice uh, the spiritual skills consistently through all the various adversities that we have that are less catastrophic, then when we get to the ones that are catastrophic, we've already set a precedent in our behavior patterns so that we know to go to the Word and we can trust God and see a sufficiency in those, in those big battles. And so they're, they're, they're facing that problem and, and Jeremiah's message of hope is that you failed and you blew it and you couldn't obey the conditions of the old covenant, but God is going is not going to forget about you. He will give you a new covenant, and in this new covenant, he's going to solve the problem for you and give you a new heart because you couldn't be obedient and love him with a full heart under the old, old law. Does that mean they weren't saved? No. 
It just means they couldn't be fully obedient because of the presence of the, of the sin nature. So the new covenant is contrasted with the old covenant. The old covenant is temporary. The new covenant is permanent. It's a future covenant, and it's only made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It's not made with the, with the church. And in the new covenant, God is going to give every Jew a new heart. Every single Jew is going to get a, a new heart, and this means an internal transformation that is more than simply getting saved or simple regeneration. Uh, Jeremiah thirty two thirty nine. I will give you I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for, for the good of their children after them. In Jeremiah thirty two forty I will make an everlasting uh, covenant with them. And then we saw that this will give a completely renewed relationship between God and his covenant people, Israel. And the new heart allows them to fulfill all of the mandates and conditions of the covenants so that they can fully enjoy, uh, enjoy the land and glorify God. Further, we saw that in Jeremiah 31, 34, in a passage that is Difficult for us to understand or conceive how it will work uh, shows that there won't be any need for a teacher. And Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-four says, No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Now, when I was in seminary, even at Dallas Seminary, with, with, with professors who are committed to dispensationalism, there are some that have tried to make the establishment of the new covenant occur at the day of Pentecost when, when uh, the Holy Spirit comes down and say that giving of the Holy Spirit is the giving of the Holy Spirit just like the law here and say, see, with the Holy Spirit we have a, a, a sensitive conscience that they didn't have before the law. But see, that, that's minimized and diminished the impact of what this is saying. This is saying that, that there's not going to be a need for a teacher anymore. Well, maybe that's what they're doing in some of these churches where everybody sits around in their Sunday school class and says, now, what do you think this means? You know, they don't have a teacher anymore. They just all share their opinions. Now, I'm just being facetious. Okay, there's going to be this renewed relationship, and nobody's going to need to teach because there's this complete, full, sufficient, internal, direct knowledge of God and his word that's in everybody that comes with this, this new heart. And another dimension of this is that the sin of Israel will be completely removed. It will be completely forgiven. And that's a national sin. That's not their individual sins. That is their national sin, which relates to the idolatry from the Old Testament (coughs) that they never fully repented of because they shifted from a physical idolatry, which is why they were taken out of the land, right? And they shift from this physical idolatry before 586, to a legalistic idolatry. It's more sophisticated. It's uh, less obvious. It's abstract. And that's what legalism is. It was a, they, they had this abstract, uh, idolatrous relationship with the law and with their own traditions. And so because of that, they reject the Messiah. And when John the Baptist came along, he said, what? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus came along and said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is hand. Where are they asking them to repent? That's, that goes right back to Deuteronomy 28 to 30, that when you disobey me, 
if you turn and come back to me with a whole heart, then I will bring you back to the land. And so you understand this whole concept of repentance and the message of Jesus must be grounded in the, the warning passages and the cursing and blessing passages in Deuteronomy and Leviticus 26, the five cycles of discipline, that when you're out of the land, when you turn to me, and that's the Hebrew word shuv, when you turn to me and do uh, shava, which is the Hebrew, Hebrew ter- term, then when you, when you do shava, then that means you're turning back, you're turning back to God and away from the idols. And because they failed to do that, as a nation, they're taken out under divine discipline in 70 A.D. And so God says, but I will return you to the land from all the nations that I will send you to. And that's never happened yet. And this is also connected uh, to the new covenant, as we saw in, in Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 36 to 39. Uh, God says that he is going to return them to the land. Jeremiah 32, 36, he says, Now, therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning this city, of which you say, this city being Jerusalem, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, says God, I will gather them out of all the lands to which I have driven them. And that's never happened before. Didn't happen in 538, 536. Didn't happen any time in the intertestamental period. They came back from Babylon, but not from all the lands. They didn't come... You didn't have this mass return from Egypt and from uh, Asia Minor or from Rome or all these other places, only from only from Babylon. So this is a, a, a an indication, Jeremiah thirty two thirty seven, that God is going to bring them back this future promise, just as He promised in Deuteronomy thirty, Leviticus uh, uh, eighteen and nineteen, that at some point when they turn as a nation back to God, then He will restore them. Restore them to the land. And Jeremiah thirty-two thirty-eight says, They shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. And then we also have seen that this new covenant is instituted by a Davidic descendant who's on the throne, and that's the return of Jesus. So since that hasn't happened yet, since none of these things have happened, the new covenant has not been enacted yet. The covenant, the legal basis for the covenant was established on the cross. And that it's because it's future, even though it's not a stat, it's not enacted, let me turn around here, until it's not, because it's not enacted until the future, we think, well, what does it have to do with us in the church age today? But it's that because it's future, in the mind of God, it's just as real, so he can bless Gentiles and the church today because Jesus established the basis for the covenant on the cross. And even though it's not enacted with Israel until the future, because of what the cross has done, blessing can be applied to Gentiles today. And so we ought to ask the question, can God do something at one time based on the potential fulfillment of something in the future. Did I say that clearly? Can God do something? Is there a historical precedent for God doing something at a particular point in time in history that was based on some, based on a work that wouldn't be accomplished for maybe thousands of years in the future? Sure, He saved all those Old Testament saints, 
But the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sins, the writer of Hebrews says. But they were saved provisionally because God knew that ultimately Jesus Christ would die on the cross and pay the penalty in the future. So their salvation was secured in the Old Testament based on a, an act that would occur in the future. So in that same way, because in the mind of God, if it's, going to, if it's established and if it's going to happen in the future, it's determined in his plan, it's, it's real. So the church gets that blessing uh, from the future. Okay, now let's go to our next key passage, key section in uh, Ezekiel. We're out of the, ex, the Jeremiah passages and now in the Ezekiel passages. In Ezekiel 36, 25, and 26, Ezekiel says, uh, God is speaking, he says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean, and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Now, there's a plural you here which indicates he's talking to the nation as, as the nation, as a corporate entity, not just, not as individuals. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. Now, that sounds like regeneration, doesn't it? And it is of, a, of the kind of regeneration that occurs in connection with the new covenant. I will put a new heart in, new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you, give you a heart of flesh. Now, I want to connect something to this. When, Jesus, when John the Baptist first appeared, he said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's addressing the Jews. And the message comes right out of the Mosaic Law. The kingdom was about to be established, and they need to they need to do shuva. They need to come back. Jesus comes along and says, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." He sends out his disciples, two by two, to the villages in in Judea and in Galilee, and he says, "Don't go to the Gentiles." And what's the message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, this is in what part of his ministry? The first part of his ministry, or the end of his ministry? It's in the first part of his ministry. Now, John chapter 3, he comes to, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Is this in the first part of his ministry or the last part of his ministry? First part of his ministry, right? It's right after the first Passover where he does signs and wonders and John, at the end of John, John 2. He performs various miracles and many people believed on his name. And right after that, Nicodemus comes to him. And he says to Nicodemus, how can you, being a teacher of Israel, not know that you have to be born again? to enter into the kingdom of God. Think, what did I just say? Jesus is saying the same thing to Nicodemus in John 3, 1, that John the Baptist is saying and that Jesus is saying in the first part of his ministry that if you want to get into the kingdom, there has to be a regeneration, which is related to that, that repentance. And... Then, in John chapter 3, I'm going to turn there. I want to make sure I articulate, because you've heard different things on this. And I've taught different things on this, because this is, there's a lot going on in the background of this that comes out of Jewish background and other things. And Arnold talked about different ways in which a person could be born again in, in rabbinical thought, things like that. 
and and which which I I think is is good and is is uh, helpful for understanding the passage. And what I'm saying here isn't contradictory to that. But in John 3, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. And then in verse 5, Nicodemus, or verse 4, Nicodemus says, Well, how can a man be born when he is old? Now, I'm, Nicodemus is probably around 40. He says, I'm 40 years old. How can I go back and get reborn? He's thinking, he's thinking literally going back into the womb. And, and uh, Jesus answers him in verse 5. He says, I say to you, unless one is born of water, and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a millennium. So what Jesus is saying is there is a certain kind of transformation that has to occur before you can enter into the kingdom. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you. Where, where is Nicodemus? Jesus says, you should know this, Nicodemus. And we need to ask ourselves, if Nicodemus is hearing Jesus talk about being born of water and being born of flesh, what is the Old Testament reference that Jesus is alluding to here that Nicodemus should be familiar with? It's right here, Ezekiel 36. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from, all, from your filthiness and from your idols, and I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. What are the key elements here? John 3, 5, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Is that making sense? The message that Jesus is giving Nicodemus is, a, is related to the, the establishment of the new covenant, which is at the beginning of the kingdom. And the same thing that he's saying to Nicodemus about entering the kingdom is the same message John said about repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the disciples said, repent, for the kingdom, kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so... The allusion goes back to Ezekiel 36, 25 to 28. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So the message to Nicodemus, which we often go to as a great example of the importance of, res, uh, of regeneration, is really a passage that must be understood within the context of the early pronouncement of Jesus' kingdom message to Israel to repent, and that that is connected to the, the fulfillment of the new covenant. So now let me take you someplace else. Are we having fun yet? Now, go back in your, in your Old Testament to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30. And we looked at this last time as we finished, finished up our study. Deuteronomy 29 and 30 is the land covenant. But even within the land covenant, there's a foreshadowing of the new covenant. And you read in uh, Deuteronomy 30, verse 5. Let's just pick up verse 4. If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, not just Babylon, but everywhere, you're driven out to the four parts of heaven, and from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you. That's when they repent, when they do shuvah, and they come back. From there he will bring you. Then 
the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. That's when he's going to fulfill the land covenant. You shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. That's the same terminology for cleansing the heart. Will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Also, the Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies and all those who persecute you. So see, Deuteronomy chapter 30 connects the land covenant with the with the new covenant, God giving them a, a new heart, and this occurs after they're saved. And this is, occurs after they're saved. Now, I can't remember, you know, if I can't remember, I know you don't remember. I don't remember if I did this the last time we were here because last week we had we had um, the threat of bad weather. But turn with me to Revelation 12 or 11. Just have fun going all over the Bible. Sort of like sword drill time. Learn to use your Bible. Now, uh, Dr. Ice talked about this on... I guess it was Tuesday afternoon when he was talking about the earth dwellers. And he was working on this about, I don't know, this was probably about a month ago. And he was working on his earth dweller paper, and I had been talking to him about what I was coming up with on regeneration. And we were trying to just think our way through this because nobody's ever tried to make these kinds of distinctions. And they just talk in general terms. And I said, "Are these? does this mean... Is this thing on back here, Bruce, or any, I mean, uh, Jack? Can't I turn it on? Okay. Okay, let's, let's try this. Jesus comes back at the second coming at, at this point. What? Okay. Here's the rapture way back here. Okay? We go up. This is the halfway point in the tribulation. Two, three and a half year periods. The new covenant gets enacted after Jesus returns. Okay? So the new covenant gets enacted here. This is when they get a clean heart, and this is where he's going to circumcise their heart. C.H. isn't nice. C.H. can do double duty there. A new heart, and they're going to get a new spirit. They're going to get, and that's a new human spirit. And there's going to be a tra- it's a transformation there. It's not, and that's why people think this is when they get regenerated. But that, there's a problem here, and they're also going to get. A, manif- a, a an indwelling of the Holy Spirit that's different from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit today because remember, in the tribulation period, the restrainer, First Thessalon- uh, Second Thessalonians 2, is removed, and the restrainer is the Holy Spirit, so there's no indwelling Holy Spirit in the tribulation period. So when they get saved in the tribulation period, they're not going to get the Holy Spirit, but they get him when the new covenant is established. Now, if we take this this to be equals personal regeneration, then that means that all these Jews who get saved 
100% of them are going to get saved at that instant in time when Jesus comes back. But we got a problem. Because in Revelation chapter 11, verse 11 and following, something happens before the midpoint. Right about here, just right before the three and a half year period, in Revelation 11, 11, the two witnesses have been killed. This is, many people think it's Moses, Moses and Elijah. I'm not committed yet because we haven't gotten there on Sunday morning. When I get there, I'll make a decision. But now I think that's, that's a working hypothesis. Um, there, God is going to raise them from the dead. And verse 12, they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. That's Jerusalem. A tenth of the city is going to be wiped out in this huge earthquake. In the earthquake, 7,000 people are killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now let's look at this. I had fun with this with the guy who believed in, a in, in limited atonement the other day at a Dallas Seminary alumni meeting. And uh, I said, okay, look, here's... Here's all the people. Let, let that circle describe all the people who live in Jerusalem at this time. Now, 7,000 of them are going to die. Now, what part of the rest are afraid and give glory to God? All of them. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. He said, it can't be all of them. See, that's that problem with limited atonement people. All can't be all you know, Jesus didn't die for all, he just died for most. That's what all means is most, or some. But the rest means that everybody else in Jerusalem is afraid and gives glory to God. And, and Tommy calls me up about 5 o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, and he says, Robbie, I found out when all those people get saved, at least the bunch that's in Jerusalem, is that this earthquake, the, the rest who survive have been hearing the testimony of these two witnesses and they respond to their message and they are indicating here that they're believers. They're either believing in Jesus as Messiah at this point or they did in the two or three days preceding this, but at this point, the rest are giving glory to the God of heaven. Now this occurs right before Right before the three-and-a-half-year period. Now, what happens, those of you who've been studying, see, this is test night. I'm asking rhetorical questions. What happens at the three-and-a-half-year period in the middle of the tribulation? The abomination of desolation. So the Antichrist is going to set up a statue of himself or set himself up in the temple to be worshipped. And in Matthew 24, Jesus said, when you see this happen, what are you supposed to do? Get out of Dodge, flee, go to the hills, leave, get as far away as you can. And woe unto those who are caught away from home or without the proper clothes in the winter or whatever because this is going to come suddenly and you need to drop everything and leave. So what happens in the chronology here is you get a bunch of people who get saved here and then the Antichrist sets himself up to be worshipped here and what do they do? 
they head south to the wilderness for in response to what Jesus told them to do in Matthew 24. Do you think a an observant Jew who's rejected Jesus as Messiah is going to listen to Jesus and get out of Dodge? No. He's only going to listen to Jesus, what Jesus said in Matthew 24, if he's already trusted Jesus as Messiah. So turn over to Matthew, I mean to Revelation 12. Revelation 11, the rest were, were saved. And Revelation chapter 12 talks about the woman, the child, and the dragon. This section of, of uh, Revelation sort of, it's, it's like the, uh, like the uh, like the program at at the baseball game tells you who the players are and and gives you their stats and so you have various players introduced here. The first one is a woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet and on her head a garland of twelve stars and that's Israel and the symbolism comes out of genesis thirty seven and then you have the introduction of the fiery red dragon who is later defined as the um, as the great dragon in verse 9, who's the serpent of old called the devil and Satan. Okay, so that's our second player. And the, the fiery red dragon in verse 3 begins to persecute the woman. And the woman has a male child in verse 5, who's to rule all the nations with the rod of iron. Well, that's the Messiah, Psalm 2. And so we know that the woman is Israel. The male child is the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's caught up to God in his throne. And then it says, Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,236 days. That's three and a half years. That's the second half of the tribulation period. Now skip down to verse 17. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, that's those that weren't in the land, but who are Jews in the rest of the world, saved Jews in the rest of the world, rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. See, that tells you that the reason they fled was because of the testimony of Jesus Christ. So the point that I'm making here is that these people who flee down and here we have, if you in a map of Israel, you have the Dead Sea and south of there over in this area is Petra over in modern Jordan, and they flee here into the wilderness and all those people who flee to the wilderness are already justified. They're already saved. They're already have accepted Jesus as the Messiah individually. But as a corporate group, they haven't called upon the name of Jesus to be their Messiah and to come and deliver them. So individually, they are already regenerate. But they don't have the new covenant form of regeneration yet because that comes only after Jesus arrives. If they died here, they would still go to heaven. It's just like the difference between Peter and James and John, the day before Pentecost, when they had, were regenerate, Old Testament regeneration, which didn't include the same dynamics as regeneration included two days later, after the day of Pentecost, when if you were saved, you got the indwelling Holy Spirit and the filling of the Spirit, and you were baptized with the Spirit, and you got spiritual gifts from the Holy Spirit, and all those things. So, just trying to think this through. 
very precisely and chronologically to understand what, what the, the dynamics are. So when we look at a passage like Ezekiel 36, 27, 28, we understand that the result of the sprinkling of clean water on you as a nation and national cleansing and being cleansed from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is more than just personal regeneration. And it has to be because when you put it all together, they're already personally regenerate. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. But when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus in John 3... It's in the context of that initial message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, because as the Messiah, he's offering Israel the kingdom, the same kingdom he's going to establish right here. It could have happened when he came the first time, but they rejected it. So now it's going to happen here, but before they can go into it, there has to be this cleansing by the water and the word. Does that make sense? And all this ties together. You know, that's what Charlie was talking about the other night, is that the word of God... That's not on. I turned it all off. Okay, I'm back. There we go. See, this is when the kingdom comes in. And before they can get from being saved here to being saved and living in the kingdom, they've got to go through this national cleansing and national regeneration process. That's what Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about because he was offering the kingdom to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. But when they rejected it, the kingdom got postponed. But people between then and here still get regenerated, but it has different uh, characteristics than the regeneration that occurs there. And that helps us understand what's going on in Ezekiel 36, 27, 28. And the other thing, this is what Charlie was talking about, when you have to take Scripture and start connecting all these different layers. It's like a, it's like a web of doctrine. And when you just go in and teach John 3 in isolation, and you don't correlate it to Ezekiel, you don't correlate it to Jeremiah, you don't correlate it to, to Revelation, then you just, it's like looking at a jigsaw puzzle and you've got two pieces and you're trying to understand the whole. But once you start putting all the pieces together, you can see the big picture and you realize how, how tight all scripture is. Every part relates to every other part and we have to learn all of this. And when we, when we don't do this, then you, you just get sort of a fragmented understanding of different aspects of God's plan. And so it's not always the easiest thing to work your way through, which is why you have to have a lot of repetition to hear it over and over again, and finally it begins to, to make sense. Well, we'll come back and we'll go through the rest of the Ezekiel passages and deal with this whole as- aspect of cleansing that is such a critical part of the new covenant uh, for the establishment of the of the millennial kingdom. Father, we thank you for this time together, recognizing your grace, your provision, the way you've worked through history, and the way you are uh, bringing about the ultimate fulfillment of these promised covenants. 
Romans 9.3 say the, the promises and the covenants belong to Israel. And that hasn't shifted. It hasn't changed. Just because Israel rejected Christ as Messiah the first advent, they will accept him eventually, and then he will come again. Father, we pray that you challenge us with the things that we study today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.